0: I want to make a disclaimer first this morning because Summer asked me to, and she didn't think that I would, but here we are. I'm not up here through any power of my own. Summer beat me in Bible trivia last night, and I just want you to know that it is, it is the Lord. It's, it's nothing of my own. So there you go, there's your disclaimer. She's going to be embarrassed when y'all tell her that I said that, so please do. All right, we can open our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to get through the first nine verses dealing with this interesting, interesting account of the Tower of Babel. Now, if you remember back in chapter 10, verse 25, it says to Eber were born two sons. So last week we went through chapter 10. It's called the Table of Nations, and it listed out all of these descendants of Noah and his sons. And it shows us where those people go and disperse throughout the nations after this event of the Tower of Babel. So we've got the 10,000-foot view in chapter 10. And there's this strange mention in verse 25, the name of one of Eber's sons was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And we read through chapter 10, we're like, what's going on here? What is this talking about? But it's a breadcrumb that leads us into chapter 11. So in chapter 11, we're zooming into this account of the division of the nations, and we're going to see how that actually came about. Some people take that dividing of the earth in Peleg's days to be talking about this concept of continental drift, the breaking up of a supercontinent into the continents that we have today. I won't say that that didn't happen, but if it did, I think that the flood probably explains it better than this vague reference. So we know that the fountains of the deep were broken up during the flood. And that seems to be possess more explanatory power for continental drift than this reference. So I'll, I'll leave you with that to ponder on. But the author was probably just dropping a pin in this conversation to come back to later in chapter 11. And so this is where the nations, and it says the earth, was divided. Now, this division that Peleg was named after, Peleg's name actually means division. That was a division of languages, not necessarily a division of land masses. And the people were divided based on their family lines. And so I think that we see God's grace in this. Because even though it is a sort of judgment on the people, and we'll get to all of this, This division was made on family lines. He kept the family units together, and they could understand each other still, but when it came to communicating with other families, they couldn't. God's grace on display. God doesn't disperse families here. He could have, but he chose to divide the people among their family lines. And all of those families who can no longer understand others, are forced to spread out into other parts of the world. And that's that division that we get. The command to Noah and his posterity was this. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was the command, the divine directive. God wanted them to disperse around the globe and inhabit it And this was his plan since the beginning. He told the same thing to Adam and Eve. But apparently these people saw the power that they could have as one large group. And they decided to disregard God's plan in favor of their own. And we'll see exactly how that plays out for them. Let's read through Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, or Shinar, and they dwelt there. They then said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are of one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over all the face of the earth. And there you have it. Now, As we move through this account, there's one question that I want us to think on. I want you to ponder this. Why did God see it necessary to intervene in the building of this tower? I'd suggest right away that it wasn't necessarily because of the pride of the people. If God intervened every time a group of people became prideful, we would see that nonstop. And that's usually the direction that Bible teachers, commentators will take this, the pride issue, I'm not saying that they weren't prideful. They certainly were. But I don't think that's the reason God chose to intervene in this situation. And we see plenty of pagan temples and monuments, towers built all across the world. Why did he step in to prevent this one from being built? Not all of those others. There's some magnificent construction made to pagan gods. We'll see some hints to answer why this one as we move through. And I'll suggest a possible explanation, but I don't know that um, this really has an easy answer. I think we have to dig, we have to think, we have to compare scripture with scripture. It's a tough question, but it deserves some thoughtful consideration. Why did God see it necessary to intervene in the building of this tower? Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech. So until the dispersion at Babel, everyone spoke the same language. And that's hard for us to to wrap our minds around. The whole earth speaking the same language. Everyone can understand everyone else. It's very likely that this was an early form of the Hebrew language, and that's very consistent. Um, so that's, that's what I go with. There, there's not any other good guesses that I'm aware of, so I'm, I'm confident telling you that it was an early form of Hebrew. Verse 2, And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Now, we discussed this a little bit when moving through the flood chapters, just a few chapters ago. And we talked about people looking at Mount Ararat in Turkey to find the ark because, what was it, chapter 8 or 9? It says that the ark rested on Mount Ararat. The question we have now is is that the same Mount Ararat that Moses refers to in the text that we have today in Turkey. That's the big question. Because people are all looking up here in Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat is up in this region. This is Ararat and Babylon the plain of Shinar is down here. Now Who has an NIV Bible this morning? Anybody? Would you mind reading for us from your NIV Bible, verse two? As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. As people moved eastward, so the NIV takes it as eastward. Does anybody have a King James? All the hands go up. <laughs> go ahead. From the east. Right. So the King James and its derivatives say from the east. So there's a big question mark there. Is it eastward or from the east? Now, one of the big reasons that we question the Mount Ararat location of the ark is because It's almost directly north of where they settled in the plain of Shinar. You see that? So what do we do with that? Is the Bible wrong that the ark landed on Mount Ararat? Is it the same Mount Ararat that we have today? We don't know. So that's the big question. And then the question becomes, well, do we take the NIV translation? And that whole camp of it, do we take the King James translation? Did they move toward the east or away from the east? But this can be resolved pretty easily, in my opinion. The Hebrew word in question is comprised of two components. We have the root, which means east, and the preposition from. And so in the original Hebrew, it looks like it is from the east. If the author wanted to say that these people traveled toward the east, or eastward, he could have used other words to better communicate that idea. And we see other words used in Genesis 25, 6. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, and while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac, his son. That eastward is a very different word than what we have. And so it seems the author could have used different words to communicate that they moved eastward. Also, the translators of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, clearly felt that the grammar said from the east because they used the Greek preposition apa. That can only mean from. It never means to or in. So based on the languages and the translators of the Septuagint, it seems like it should be from the East. That would mean, and this is where a lot of archaeologists now are looking, that would mean that the Ark probably came to rest somewhere over here in the highlands of modern-day Iran. And so a lot of the attention has been pulled over there in search for the Ark recently. And so I wanted to take some time to talk about that since it came up in verse 2 there. But those who say it's on Mount Ararat in Turkey do tend to say that Noah and his sons could have wandered about a little bit before they came into the land of Shinar, and so that would suppose that they went over into Iran, stayed for a little bit, weren't satisfied, and then came over, kept continuing over to the land of Shinar. So that's how they kind of fit the text with that view. And I suppose that's not completely out of the realm of possibility, but it's also not stated in the text that they traveled anywhere else but to the land of Shinar. Verse 3. Then they said to one another come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar now this brick would be like a kiln baked clay there wouldn't there weren't many building materials in that area and all these construction projects besides this one where they actually used the native materials just the mud and asphalt, they would have had to ship in materials. And archaeologists think that that's why the biblical character Nimrod moved northward in his expansion. So we talked last week about the cities of Nineveh, Kalna, Rezin, and was it Rehoboth? And they're up pretty far north into like Armenian territory, up that way, actually towards Mount Ararat. So up there, there's more wood, more natural resources to gather, and he could send back down to keep expanding in his lower territories. So we see here, though, that they just used brick for stone. That's a kiln-baked brick. And they had asphalt for mortar. And that asphalt is a particular word that tells us that they used petroleum products in this sort of pitch. It's, it's like an asphalt product. And the Rockefeller family actually looked at this and said, oh, there must be plenty of oil in the Middle East. And they went over, and that's how they made a large portion of their wealth. They read the Bible. So there you go. <laughs> No, I'm not saying that. But. <laughs> Worked for the Rockefellers. They ain't going to work for you. <laughs> Sorry. They had brick for stone, and then they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, there's a couple of things that we want to take note of in these two verses, three and four. First, understand that this congregating together of the people was in direct opposition to God's command to spread out. God told Noah and his sons to spread out over the earth, to refill it, to populate (laughs) it. But now these men decided to stick together and form a centralized type of government. They wanted to build a city and a tower. And when we see this, whose top is in the heavens, that is literally, its tower would be unto the heavens. It's like the heavens are the proposed destination of the tower. They're trying to get to heaven. They're trying to have counterfeit spiritual experiences through using this tower. And we'll investigate that further in a second. And the second thing we want to take note of here, they weren't trying to reach the heavens physically by building a really tall tower. That's the sort of idea that we get in the Sunday school version, right? They're building a really high tower, so they can climb up to God in heaven. That's not what the text says. A tower unto heaven. They're trying to bring heaven down to them. That's really what's going on. The purpose of this temple, we can think of it as, was probably to come back in touch with the angelic activity that was so prominent before the flood. Right? Right? It was dark, it was idolatrous, and it was a cult. And this tower was a ziggurat. It didn't look like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It was a step pyramid, right? Big wide base, the next level a little bit smaller, next level a little bit smaller, and it would build up. And that was a common type of architecture in the Middle East at this time. And we see these ziggurats all over the world. Certainly in South America, like the Incas, the Aztecs, and really anywhere you go, you can find a very old ziggurat. It seems nearly every culture knew about this design, which is remarkable but not surprising if they were all dispersed after sharing this common experience. But what's even more suggestive about this is that most of these cultures would use this ziggurat type of architecture exclusively for religious buildings, for temples. They knew. They knew something that may have been lost to us. And they weren't thought of as a house of worship for people so much as an abode for a deity. It was like a house they were building for their patron god of the city. It was a place where that god could come into and dwell. And it seems that a lot of people knew exactly what they were doing because they say, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. It seems like there was that consciousness that they were going against what they should be doing. And we get that feeling all the time, don't we? Whenever we step foot into something that we know we're not supposed to do, sometimes we do it anyways. They knew what God had commanded, and they knew they were doing the exact opposite of that. And apparently, based on that piece of text, they knew the consequences, lest we be scattered across all the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Now, this is another instance of anthropomorphic language being used to describe how God is working. It's hard for us as humans to describe the workings of God, how he moves in certain situations. So the author says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Does that mean that he couldn't see it where he was before? Absolutely not. No, God being omnipresent everywhere at once, he knows exactly what's going on. And he can't learn anything. Because he knows everything, right? So, no, this is really just saying that he turned his special attention to this city and this tower to act upon it. And that's what we see here. He acts upon it. The fact that God came down to see the city and the tower is actually kind of ironic when you remember the purpose of the tower. You know, they didn't get the deity they expected but they did get somebody's attention, Yahweh's. The tower was supposed to be a place for their gods to dwell. And there was actually usually a small room at the top of these ziggurats, at least in Mesopotamia in the Middle East. I don't know about other cultures. And this small room would house a bed and a table that was consistently restocked with food for the deity that came to visit their city. Wild, right? It was literally an abode for their gods. And there's no evidence in history and architecture that there was any use by the humans of that room. So it was... Strictly for the gods. And, you know, we see that is obviously a very skewed idea of what was really happening in that situation. But that's what they thought. They thought that their gods were coming down to bless their city. But instead of their patron god coming down to bless the city, the almighty god came down to put an end to this conspiracy against him. And he put an end to it by confusing their languages. Verse 7, God goes on to say, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the people had gotten together in verses 3 and 4 in some sort of a council situation. They say, Come, let us build ourselves a city. And that reads like they're all meeting. They're having a meeting, deciding what to do. Should we spread out? Should we populate the earth like God said? Should we stay here? They decide to stay, build a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. That was a bad mistake, wasn't it? This council of the people Is met with a counsel from God. The people said, Come, let us build ourselves a city. God said, Verse 7, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. There's certainly a hint of the triunity of God here in the use of the personal plural pronoun us. Let us go down. God is having a council. He's deciding what to do. Verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So this is how God decides to deal with this situation. And because the people couldn't understand each other anymore, I'm sure their productivity went way down. You know, it became much harder to build that tower in that city. They couldn't work as effectively. And I can just imagine how frustrating it would be trying to tell your employees what to do and all they hear is blah, 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 Couldn't get any work done. There's no wonder that they actually scattered. They were all frustrated with each other. And the whole field of linguistics, the study of language, seems really complicated to me. They don't have recorded speech from ancient cultures. They can't just pull it up on their iPod And listen to these ancient Babylonians talk, they have to decipher how they pronounced things and how their language worked based on written records. Seems hard. But they use misspellings in those texts to figure out how some words were spoken, right? And so, for example, A commonly misspelled word in English is consensus. Now, if somebody long in our future came across a book with the word consensus used seven times and one of them was misspelled, well, that misspelling can tell you how we pronounce it. For example, if we found the misspelling consensus, C-O-N-C instead of an S, -S E-N-S-U-S, that would tell us something about how we pronounce that C in the rest of our words, consensus. If it was misspelled as C-O-N-S-E-N-S-I-S instead of the U, that would tell us that the U-S ending And the IS ending sounded the same or similar, right? So we can draw these conclusions based on misspelled words. Very complicated. I have no desire to venture into this field. And languages are grouped together into broader categories based on their origin, which people group they came out of. And there are two major competing theories on the origin of language. That's a big question. Where did language come from? We have the inspired, authoritative answer. We do. But of course, not everyone believes that. So they try to find it themselves. And there's two competing camps about the origin of language. One camp says that there was a single proto-language from which all other languages derived. And this is called monogenesis. There was one start to all of the languages. The other camp says that several languages were formed independently of one another. That's polygenesis, right? Many languages all sprouting into their own respective categories or groups. So, what's the biblical position on the origin of language? That's a bit of a tricky question because we see Adam at the very beginning. He was given language by God. He was created with the ability to commune with God, no doubt to speak to him, to understand what God was telling him. And he was tasked with naming the animals, which is a dead giveaway that language was around. So the first man had language. That was a single language. So we begin to think monogenesis, and then we come to the Tower of Babel. And there's this supernatural intervention from God. He scrambles the languages, mixes them up. So that would fall under polygenesis, right? So in the future, if we see some more advancements in the field of linguistics, I would expect more evidence to come out in favor of polygenesis because this is the last big thing that we have happen. Now, What's really interesting is that many cultures around the world have incorporated the idea of a deity confusing man's language. And they have some sort of flood account too. So we see this all over the the world. These major events of the collective past seem to be etched into the minds of people around the globe. For example, the Sumerian epic titled "Enmerkar and the Lord of Arada tells of a time when, quote, the whole universe in unison spoke to Enlil, their chief god, in one tongue. It was a time of harmony between people. And it says that speech was changed and contention was brought into it. Interesting. And that's from Mesopotamia a little later than the Tower of Babel. And there are many other examples, but this one actually ties in well with the discussion of Nimrod. So we saw Nimrod last week in verse 8 of chapter 10. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter, before the Lord. Then it goes on to tell about his kingdom. He was obviously a king. But Nimrod's name means roughly rebel. But that name is not found in archaeology or history aside from the biblical or traditional Jewish sources. Nimrod, the name is not found in archaeology. What does that tell us? Oh, no. Did the Bible make something up? No, absolutely not. There is certainly an equivalent character in history. The Jews just changed his name in this account. It seems that he was given this nickname or pseudonym, Nimrod, by the Hebrew-speaking people. Now, The Hebrews love wordplay, and Nimrod's name seems to be one of these instances where they take his real name, which carries a certain meaning on its own, and they slightly change it to give it a different meaning with the same sound, roughly. Since we don't find the name Nimrod in the archaeological records, biblical historians have been trying to track down the historical figure equivalent to Nimrod, for a long time. And they've come up with some really good guesses. But it is hard to nail this down with any kind of certainty. And in my opinion, one of the more likely identities for Nimrod is the figure Inmerkar. That's his name. And yes, it's the main character in that Sumerian epic, Inmerkar and the Lord of Arada that we just talked about. Inmerkar was a historical figure. He was the second king of a after the flood. And the name Inmerkar is a compound word. The prefix in means Lord. And the suffix kar is Sumerian for hunter. Sound familiar? It should. Genesis 10.8 says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Interesting, but still probably just coincidental. It seems that the, the Hebrews took his name Inmerkar and made it sound like Marad, which is their word for rebel. And remember, there are no vowels in ancient Hebrew. Right? So the vowels are all implied. So the in, and r from Inmer were just filled in to give them the name Nimrod, the rebel, because of what he did. See, so it was a retroactive nickname. This may come as a surprise to many, but there is also an idea, which is not entirely unwarranted, that the biblical Tower of Babel was not in what we know as Babylon. Okay. This is an idea. I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. Some historians think, and biblical historians, Bible-believing historians, believe that the Tower of Babel was not in what we know as Babylon, which would have been the Babylon of Daniel's day, Nebuchadnezzar's day. The leading view in this camp is that the Tower of Babel was in the ancient city of Eridu, a little over 100 miles southeast of Babylon. I've got a map for you. We can pull up real quick. Eridu is this far south city right by Ur. And you see Uruk just north, north of the Euphrates there. Uruk is where Enmerkar was king. That was his home. And Eridu was just a little south. And we see Babylon up north, northwest up there. I don't know if y'all can read that. Here, I'll show you on here. Babylon's right here. This is Euphrates River, Tigris River, Babylon. Here's Uruk. Named after Erech, that we saw in chapter 10, Ur and Eridu are right here to the south slightly. So Babylon, Uruk, Eridu. Okay. And Nineveh, Kala, and Rezin would be up here. So that's where this king, this dictator, spread. Conquered these areas for those building materials. Okay, you see that? Now we gotta find where we were. Okay, talking about Eridu. There has been a ziggurat found in Eridu that appears to have been abandoned in the middle of its construction. Okay, it's (laughs) it is entirely possible that the historians are completely overthinking this situation. Um, That is not out of the realm of possibility. And there is the base of a ziggurat still in Babylon, the same Babylon in Daniel's day that we have. So it's possible that that was the Tower of Babel. It's hard to be certain about any of this that's not spelled out in the Bible for us. But again... It's possible we're just overthinking it. So don't let that take you too far off. Sargon of Akkad is another front runner for the identity of Nimrod. If this was him, it would place him out of the time period to be involved with the Tower of Babel. Okay, so I know I'm complicating things further. But some think that Nimrod wasn't even connected with the Tower of Babel. Is this idea biblical? I don't think that it can be disproven from the Bible. However, there are ancient historians, Josephus is one, who do connect Nimrod with the Tower of Babel. In Book 1 and Chapter 4 of Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus writes this, Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it was through his means that they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. Josephus does connect Nimrod to the Tower of Babel. And I'm going to keep reading here for a second. I want you to pay attention to this next part. See if it sounds like anything we see going on. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his power. Okay. Yeah, rings some bells, doesn't it? Unfortunately. And Josephus also says that the place wherein they built the tower is now called Babylon. So Josephus thinks that the Tower of Babel was in Babylon, and Nimrod was connected to it. I, I'm not going to give you a hard and fast answer, because I don't see the Bible telling us these things, but Josephus does. He was a historian in the first century, and the Babylon that he calls Babylon is the same Babylon that we know today, so we can be sure of that. Now let's make our way back to verse 9 in our text this morning. I'll read through verse 8 and 9 again. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there, over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad, over the face of all the earth. The name Babel also seems to be some kind of wordplay, just like Nimrod. The original name for this tower was probably Babalu, which means in Sumerian, gate of the gods. Fits right with the purpose of the tower, gate of the gods. But the Hebrews refer to it as Babel, which is based on the Hebrew word for confusion, Balal. The name Gate of the Gods is really telling when we ask what they were doing with this tower. Right? What were they doing with the tower? Well, they called it Gate of the Gods. So that does bolster the opinion that, yeah, I mean, There was something connected here that wasn't supposed to be. They were trying to reach something out of their natural realm. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. These people were trying to build a gate to the gods, literally. The gods we're talking about are the Elohim, the little g-gods, Of the nations. And this practice of seeking alternative modes of spirituality is altogether forbidden by God. And it's not because He wants to limit you, per se, it's because He knows how harmful that whole realm is. And it certainly is harmful. He knows what's there, and we really don't. It's foolish to try to meddle in things that we don't understand. And as a loving father does, he is protecting his children by forbidding these aberrant spiritual practices. In fact, the law was very clear that the penalty for one in the camp of Israel who was caught in any sort of occultic activity was death. Stoning was the penalty. Those practices are such an affront to God that he didn't want them spreading among his people. He wanted them stopped. Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 12, is one of these passages which strictly prohibits occult activity, including witchcraft. It says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. Now, a little tie-in here. Remember, these nations are descended from Canaan. They're the Canaanites that we looked at in chapter 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Notice that all of these are going to be occult practices, idolatrous, and destructive. Pass through the fire or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. Call a necromancer. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord and because of these abominations the Lord your God drives them out before you. The Tower of Babel was an early attempt by man to tap into this spiritual power without God. And that's the key, without God. But God wants us to trust him. He wants us to come to him for our spiritual experiences. Proverbs 3, 5-6 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. He wants to be the one to have a personal relationship with you, to direct you. He doesn't want some other spiritual entity. There are other spiritual entities. He doesn't want another one to have you. The Bible says God is a jealous God. He wants your affection. Why does he want your affection? Well, he gave you his first. Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. He reached out first. And he wants you to take his hand. Those people in the plain of Shinar didn't trust that God had their best in mind when he commanded them to populate the world. They didn't trust. They acted in defiance of him, and they consolidated their power among themselves. Nimrod acted as the first dictator. You know, Josephus said he gradually turned the government into tyranny. He consolidated power to remove the fear of God from the people. This is very telling to us when it comes to how we should react and how we should approach a situation in which we are entrusted with power. Nimrod had a lot of power, and he used it poorly, and he approached the situation poorly. We can all do better. Now, I don't think that any of us will be running a kingdom. But if you are, keep me in mind. (laughs) He was given this power. We know that God sets up kings and takes down kings. But it got to his head. He used it in a way that was not glorifying to God. I was listening to a pastor... Who also happens to be very learned, he's got a PhD, probably a couple, I don't know. I was listening to him about Nimrod, and this is the application that he made. He said he went and started a church in Siberia, He moved to Russia and started a church. <laughs> and he said when he came into that pastorate, people were asking him what to do. And he said, I I had all of this power that I could wield over these people. And, you know, the thing that I did with it was push it away. I don't want it, you know, accept your duties, your responsibilities, but push away the, the power. I thought that was a really interesting way to think about this. You know, you have employees, you have people that look up to you that work for you. Are you going to lord it over them like the Gentiles? Or are you going to be a servant among them? How do we approach the power that we're given? Push it away. Nimrod didn't do that. He said, yep, yeah, gimme, give gimme. Give Bring it in. And we have this testimony of Nimrod in the Bible. And it's not positive. Trust in God. One for your salvation, of course. That's the first thing that needs to happen. And then trust him with your life, your your walk. Because when you come into Christ, it's only the beginning of your life with him. It's, it's not the end. You step into this journey with Christ, and then you have to live it out. You know, some have said it's easy to die for Christ. It's harder to live for him. I don't know if that's true or not. Never been in that situation. But the lesson rings true. You have to live for him. Trust in him. He does have your best intention in mind, despite what we may think. And I know the temptations there to think, God, are you even still here? Are you in this situation? But I assure you, he is. He doesn't have to move anywhere. To see exactly what's going on. And he knows exactly what's in your heart, in your mind, and everything that we're doing. So let's please him this week. We're going to wrap up our study right there. We'll finish off chapter 11, break into chapter 12 next week. We're going to be dealing with this messianic line, Shem's descendants, in the rest of chapter 11. And then Abraham. Comes onto the scene in chapter 12. So that is going to be a really good study for us. Abraham is obviously a pioneer of the faith, and it's from his descendants that the Israelites come from. And so we'll we'll get to look at that as we continue through Genesis. So if you would please bow your heads with me and we'll close in order word of prayer.